previously on Case Unsolved. Mr. Spicer was a true swamp Yankee. Bill was great. He had a he had a great personality. I really liked the guy. He was an older man. He was 82 years old. You know, he owned his own business. He believed in the you know, being involved in the local civics. He wouldn't be a, what you would typically characterize as somebody who you think would be high risk for a homicide. He was very devoted to his wife. They never went anywhere without holding hands. Shocking, actually horror, you know, that you'd have someone in the community that would commit a, a really violent crime. Anybody that knew Bill could never harm him. From the day in New London, Connecticut, I'm Carlos Vietin. And this is Case Unsolved. Here's Erica Moser with the second and final part of the William C. Spicer Jr. story. On March 15th of 1995, that was a Wednesday, police got a call about a man who appeared to be dead inside his car. It was Bill Spicer. The death was ruled a homicide the next day, and the chief medical examiner's office said the cause of death was multiple stab wounds to the neck and abdomen. The attack on him was a a blitz-type attack. Police said Bill Spicer was found in his tan Ford Taurus, about 150 yards down the dirt road. Part of the crime scene was discovered outside of the vehicle and then also with inside the vehicle. So, but I can't get into specifics on where the actual um, injuries occurred. John Verone, who you heard from in the last episode, is a retired Groton Town police officer. A blitz attack would be without getting into specifics on this case, a blitz attack would be where someone may or may not see it coming, but in any case, they're not able to react as quickly as they would if they saw someone coming up or could see the, the physiological responses of someone getting ready to fight. John Verone told us that police had worked through the night and into the next day. The next day, March 16th, he got a call to come help. I actually received a phone call that morning, probably around uh, 6 o'clock, asking to come in and assist with conducting some area searches. So there was a, probably about 15 of us that came in, and what we were looking for was uh, more evidence of the crime. Because of the, the open area of what it was, uh, we had to do a specific type of search to try and locate specific evidence. The crime scene was at Sparkle Lake Christmas Tree Farm, which had been a hobby and a business for Bill Spicer in the years since he retired from the family-owned Spicer's Marina. According to an article in The Day from March 17, 1995, quote, he purchased the land, which was a gravel pit and swamp, in the 1950s to build homes, but changed his mind when he realized how beautiful the land could be, end quote. Now that land was the site of a murder investigation. That day, a helicopter flew overhead while police dogs ran through trees and police searched trash bins and storm drains nearby. We did a uh, stop and talk uh, on Thomas Road, uh, speaking to people that traveled it, because that is a common road that's traveled from the city of Groton to the town of Groton. And the generalized time that we were able to determine would be a time that people would be commuting. Police canvassed the homes and apartment buildings near the tree farm, and they searched the golf course that borders the property to the north. From a March 20, 1995 article in The Day. Town police continued their investigation into the stabbing murder of William C. Spicer Jr. Sunday afternoon, using divers to search an irrigation pond at the Trumbull Golf Course. 
Divers spent several hours searching the small pond near the 13th hole in the northwest corner of the course. Over the years, dive teams continued to search the pond different times using sonar and metal detectors. By six months after the murder, the police department still had five officers assigned to the case full-time. The governor at the time, John Rowland, offered a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. That reward is now up to $50,000, and you can see posters advertising that amount in police departments throughout the region. Amid the early days of the investigation was also Bill Spicer's funeral. The service was held on March 20th at the First Church of Christ Congregational, which is in Groton, and the burial followed at Star Hill Cemetery. Since last week's episode, we got an interesting tip, something we hadn't reported before. Police at one point had to exhume Bill Spicer's body to obtain his fingerprints. We confirmed this with police. We again talked to retired officers John Verone and Matt Morton, along with Detective Heather Beauchamp. None of them recalled exactly when the body was exhumed. Detective Beauchamp said she can't comment as to why fingerprints weren't taken back then. Having the fingerprints of the victim is critical because if police find prints at the scene of the crime, they first need to determine whether or not the prints are those of the victim. In the first year after Bill Spicer's death, police enlisted the help of Dr. Henry Lee, a forensic expert who testified in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, As part of his involvement, he examined the clothing and other items that were found at the scene. Cold cases usually become very difficult. Dr. Lee is now retired from the Connecticut State Police, where he served as director of the Forensic Science Laboratory. He went on to found the Henry C. Lee Institute of Forensic Science at the University of New Haven. He no longer has access to the files from the Spicer case, but he did talk to us about the difficulties of solving a crime years after the initial investigation. Solving the case, the best time period is the first 24 hours. And uh, once the case gets called, witness uh, statement, witness memory getting faded away, and uh, physical evidence, let's say, if the crime scene we review right away, uh, you have a chance to go back to collect more samples. But the cold case, uh, after so many years, the crime scene already gone. Uh, so you don't have to actually go back to collect samples. Police found a homemade 12-inch knife in a stream. They sent it out for testing, but told us recently they still have not determined if it was the murder weapon. We did find a uh, handmade knife um, that was located that um, we believe could possibly be the the weapon that was used. Um, It was put in, the photographs were put in the paper of it and stuff. Linda Pinault, the neighbor who worked as caretaker for Bill's wife, Doris, told us that police brought a knife to the house. Somebody brought the knife to the house, and that upset me. There were other, obviously, pieces of evidence that were found um, that at a time would have been shown to family members just to see if they recognized it, um, if we could explain why it was in a certain place or not, or not in a certain place, etc. I'm going, why would you bring that to the house? 
you know, I thought that was extremely cold, but I guess that's what you do in murder cases, you know. And at that time, everybody wanted to find who it was. Everybody blamed everybody. Everybody goes, you know, typical, because it hit the the family so hard, you know. Was there suspicions? I'm sure there are, you know. I'm sure that, you know, obviously there's a lot of blame being thrown around, as with in anything. You know, any time a, a family experiences a death, even if it's a, a nonviolent death, it's accidental, we all look at, you know, how we could have prevented that or how other people could have. So, you know, obviously there's going to be that aspect of it. But it's our job as detectives to eliminate the emotion and the opinion that people have and get down to the facts of the case. Every couple of years, they'd come back and rehash it and ask questions. Do you know anybody? How does the family get along? Um, do you think anybody in the family would hurt him? You know, no, I don't think any of they argued back and forth over things, but I don't think anybody would really want to hurt their father or their uncle or their brother or whatever. And there wasn't a brother. There was no brother. Um, no, and I couldn't understand, you know, but they were, because the family was so devastated, it's like, you know, anybody, everybody was like up for grabs. Did you hurt him? Who's going to hurt Bill? Retired Groton detective Matt Morton confirmed that police spoke to the family a number of times during the investigation. Information we were getting from other people led us back again to the family, that they were having problems within the family. You know, there was disagreement on selling property or on inheritance and different things. So we kept, you know, we, we would go outside and look at close friends and uh, acquaintances that were frequented the, the tree farm. And then from interviewing, we'd go back again to the family and then we'd go off in another direction. It, it was, like I said, very confusing and um, everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. And unless you have that one little bit to tie everybody together, it, it just went nowhere. Bill Spicer Jr. had three children, William III, John, and Doris, but John died before his father in 1991. According to his obituary, he also had 11 grandchildren. One of them actually now lives in the house that Bill Spicer Jr. used to live in on Shanacosset Road, and out front, you can still see a rusty mailbox that says W.C. Spicer Jr. on it. And today, uh, his two step-grandsons work at Spicer's Marina in Noank. Along with the grief and confusion of having a loved one murdered, over the years, family also had to deal with a lot of logistical issues in terms of property and finances. And that stemmed from just how much property Bill Spicer Jr. owned. Along with his home on Shanacosset Road and the Christmas tree farm on Thomas Road and Spicer's Marina on Marsh Road in Noank, Bill Spicer owned more than 25 acres of commercial property on Drosdick Drive, along with a building lot on Bayberry Lane and three lots on Tyler Avenue. All of those properties are within the city or town of Groton. At the time of Bill Spicer's murder, the combined assessment of all of that property was more than $2.5 million. 
While the marina and the home remained in the family, other property was sold off over the years. Family didn't sign the settlement agreement and release on the estate and trust until 2013. From reading that agreement, which is in the town's probate records, it seems that there were some issues with the accounting of the estate. Due to the complexity of the prior accountings as on file with the court and the irregularities in said accounting as a result of misfeasance or malfeasance by previously employed accounting professionals engaged to submit such accounts, it is, for all practical purposes, impossible for the estate and trust fiduciaries to assemble and present a true and accurate final administration account for said estate and trust to the court. There were some legal and financial issues that arose even before Bill Spicer Jr.'s death, both among the family and outside the family. The personal property listing in probate records showed claims of more than $300,000 that Bill Spicer made against the estate of his late son, John Spicer. Records said this was related to cash loaned to his son. John Spicer's estate in 1998 denied liability and said that if anyone was responsible for the payment, it was John's brother, William III. He offered to pay a sum to either the estate of his father or mother to, quote, avoid the uncertainty of litigation, the expense and emotional costs of litigation within the family. But there was also litigation that went outside the family, and some of that spanned from before Bill Spicer Jr.'s death until after his death with his estate handling the case. For instance, on January 31st of 1995, so less than two months before Bill Spicer was killed, he and his son, William III, appealed a decision of the Noank Fire District Zoning Board of Appeals. The board had voted to allow property owners near Spicer's Marina to move part of the building and to make it about eight feet taller. The Spicers were unhappy that the board granted these variances. It wasn't until December of 1996 that the Superior Court ruled in favor of William Spicer III and the estate of William Spicer Jr. The court found that the Fire District Zoning Board of Appeals abused its discretion in granting the variances and found that the variances were illegal. Court records appear to show disagreements among Spicer family members before and after the murder. And Bill Spicer didn't always get along with those that disagreed with him especially when it came to his conservation efforts. Who would ever want to harm a man like Bill? Oh, he could get on your nerves on the grounds that he was a determined main person. You know, he, he made up his mind you weren't going to change it. You know, he knew how to talk to people like that. But, and I'm talking when he was on a case. You know, in other words, when he had, when he had a, something in his claw, he wasn't going to let it go. But, I mean, harm. Huh? No, never, never, never. He was a kind, kind man. I know he was a controversial character. Philip Redden was a neighbor of Bill Spicer's in Bridgeton, Maine, where they both owned property on Foster Pond. He was interested in environmental protection, and I think he ruffled some, from what I've heard, now this is not my knowledge, just what I've heard, he ruffled some feathers around the industries involving docks and other types of industries in Groton and elsewhere along the coast. Bill, you know, he was kind of a man of the water. Paul Duart served with Bill Spicer on the city of Groton's Inland Wetlands and Conservation Commission. I would say the coastline was important to him and what happened on the coastline and 
how um, that was protected and uh, developed. During their time on the commission, there were major expansions at Pfizer's headquarters in Groton, along with some smaller projects at the University of Connecticut at Avery Point. Bill was uh, pretty sensitive about, you know, the coastline also and what could be done with the coastline or how to get people to the coastline in a way that they could enjoy it. He really wanted to resist the activities that uh, Peter Dory was undertaking because it was affecting the environment of the pond severely. In Maine, Bill Spicer and Philip Redden switched on and off as president of the Foster Pond Association. The association began as a social one, uh, Philip Redden told us, but he said members ended up spending more than $75,000 in legal fees against a man named Peter Dory. One year we arrived at the pond to find that the water level was at least three feet higher than it had been the previous year. And we had never seen it that high. I believe parts of our dock floated away and we had to retrieve them. And we came to find out that Peter Dory had decided he was going to raise the pond level and attempt to use that water to run a turbine. Eventually we found out that he wanted to start a small electric company and run a turbine and sell power to the neighbors. And that's what, what got this whole thing started. That very first time when the water level went up that high, I believe it flooded over two or three septic systems, if I can dignify them with, with that description, at the north end of the pond. And that, of course, would severely affect the water quality. But we were just interested in keeping the pond the way it was. So Bill got it going, and he, he was the leader in the fight opposing Peter Dory's actions. Peter Dory wanted a court to affirm his right to operate the dam and flood the land around the pond. So in 1991, he filed an action against 44 waterfront property owners, including Bill Spicer. Of course, they were not happy with that. They didn't want their land flooded. So some of them continued on with the legal process, and the Maine Superior Court eventually ruled in favor of the property owners. On appeal from Peter Dory, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court affirmed that judgment. But that opinion wasn't decided until after Bill Spicer's death in August of 1998. I did hear that Peter Dory was heard to say that there were people, some of us believed that he was responsible for Bill's death. I don't know where he got that idea. Uh, I'm sure some of us did believe he, it's possible that he had something to do with it, but we don't know. My, in my own views, he had the opportunity and the knowledge of the area down around Groton because of his Coast Guard Association. He knew the area. He knew that Bill had a tree farm. So he had the ability to get down there, and he might know some people down there for all, might have known some people down there for all I know. That's, all, that's the extent of my uh, belief that he might have had something to do with it. I have no evidence whatsoever to that effect. Well, we couldn't find an obituary, a few people with houses on Foster Pond separately told us that Peter Dory had died within the past few years. I don't think they're ever going to find um, th that killer because I think he's dead. 
It seems like everyone has a theory about who killed Bill Spicer, from a bitter relative to an angry neighbor in Maine to a drifter seen around Groton at the time. There was a drifter that was in town at that time. You know, he was taken up living in uh, Colonel Ledgett Cemetery and the city police ran him out. And he was always hanging around Cumberland Farms and they kind of ran him off there. Then he was down uh, where the, uh, the railroad tracks cut across Shanacosset Road area. So he was living in the woods up around there and that had direct proximity to Bill's property. So that's what I, I figured that, you know, he was, a, he was highly suspect in my mind and I know that that individual uh, was killed in a knife fight in Boston. In an article from The Day from 1995, relatives speculated that it was a robbery because Bill Spicer's wallet was missing. A few days later, police were looking for a 14-year-old boy, but in a March 31st article, police said that they had located the runaway and ruled him out. Over the 23 years since the murder, people around Groton and beyond have developed theories and speculation about who killed Bill Spicer. These theories vary based on where people lived and how they knew the victim and how well they knew him. But none of these have been confirmed by police. Assistant State's Attorney Krista Baker said that police followed up on every lead and tip, no matter how unlikely. Literally, it ran from people who were casual acquaintances to him, to drifters, to people who other people reported were oddly upset that he was passed away. I mean, it was everything that came in, every piece of information was followed up on. Um, And with any homicide, you get bizarre and strange reports from people. Um, Some of them have absolutely nothing to do. And that's a lot of the reason why we don't release stuff about the the details of the crime scene, because you have to be able to um, separate the people who are possibly just calling because they want attention or um, people who have some real information. You need to be able to sort through that. And the only way to do that is to know whether or not they have real details about what happened. In talking to different law enforcement officials, what we heard was that even for those who have been retired for a number of years, this is still a case that weighs on them, a case they think about, a a case that they want to see solved. We got a family that can't have closure, and that's hard. Again, retired detectives Verone and Morton. You want to give the family closure. You want to bring whoever did this to justice. And just for my, like for myself, for my own peace of mind, it's like I left the job with unfinished business. These are the big cases that you remember for the rest of your life. And, and I'd like to get them one way or another, get them solved. The people that are left behind, you can't give them that person back. But at least you can give them closure. At least you can, it can help them through the, you know, the process by at least being able to answer the questions that they have. Um, I think the hardest part about this case is not being able to do that for their family. You know, there are grandkids, his, you know, his son, um, his, the great-grandkids, uh, the extended um, cousins, and etc. that just go to bed wondering, what happened? You know, why, why did someone have to do this? Um, and that's hard. When it comes to cold cases, a lot of people think that DNA or hard evidence is going to be what eventually solves the case. But a lot of these cases are primarily confession-based. 
And there are still lots of law enforcement officers who are holding out hope that after all these years, maybe someone will have a guilty conscience or someone will come forward and say something now that they weren't willing to say years ago. The best asset police have is, is time. It sounds bizarre because time is fighting you, but at the same time, time is helping you because as people get older, maybe their conscience weighs on them more. They mature more, they have children of their own, and they have families, and maybe that guilt, if they know something, it starts weighing on them. Or maybe they didn't speak up because they were fearful. Now that threat is gone. The person that maybe they saw or know committed the crime, maybe they're not around them anymore, so now maybe they feel a little bit more comfortable that they can disclose something. Um, so that's, I, I guess, the only way time is helpful. Um, but really, it, it is the community that solves these. I know that there are people out there now that have information. They know something. They may not realize how important that piece of information is, and they don't know whether to call or whether to say something. My pleading to everybody is call. Speak to one of the detectives. Even if it's nothing, at least let us hear it. And then we'll know if it's nothing, but it could be the one little piece that breaks this case wide open. And I really think that that's all it is. I think that what's stopping us is just a threat or two that's keeping us from being able to see the whole picture. And once that thread is broken, this case will unravel and it'll be cleared. From a March 13, 1997 article in The Day, almost two years after the murder. That Spicer, an elderly and vulnerable man, was stabbed repeatedly in the neck and abdomen on the farm he was known to frequent, a place in which he felt safe alone, reveals insights into the person who killed him, investigators said Wednesday. Mr. Spicer was killed on the farm he loved, said Detective Sergeant Walter R. Conley. Oh my gosh, he trimmed the trees. Him and Doris would both be over there trimming the trees in the heat of the summer and um, in all their paraphernalia and everything and spraying the trees. That was the love of his life. He loved the Christmas tree tr lot. I think that was his, uh, the time that he used in, in his day to just be at peace and to enjoy his time, you know, doing something that he loved. And I was taking care of those uh, Christmas trees. I remember hearing stories from the, the senior guys um, at the time about how he would, on Christmas Eve, he would take the trees that weren't sold, you know, and once it was, you know, about 4.30 or so, and rather than just close up the Christmas tree stand, he'd take all the trees that weren't sold and he'd put them outside the gate. Um, and the reason he did that was so that the families that couldn't afford a Christmas tree, they could come and get one. One thing that really stuck with me was a headline I saw from a March 17, 1995 article in The Day, so two days after Bill Spicer was killed. The headline was, Last Moments Spent on the Land He Loved. In that article, Bill Spicer's cousin, Philip Tuttle, told The Day, he cared deeply about the environment. He cared about clean air, clean water, the birds and the bees. Literally, the birds and the bees. Cardinals were hard to find, and mockingbirds we never saw. On the oral history recording, 
Spicer is an encyclopedia of local bird species. You have the night herons, of which you can find a couple sitting over on the island, the little island in the duck pond right now. Well, no, not today. When the sun is around on the island. Today, the Sparkle Lake property is a wooded oasis on the busy Groton shoreline. Standing near the spot he died, you're surrounded by bird songs. I haven't seen any Carolina wrens through the winter lately, but I imagine they'll be back. That did strike me that he was someone who was so conservation-minded and that he died on this piece of land that he had bought in the 1950s and had considered building homes on and then changed his mind and ended up with 40,000 Christmas trees there. Nearly half of the text of Bill Spicer's obituary is devoted to his love of nature. It reads in part, Mr. Spicer was an ardent conservationist. He once took issue with advertisements which described artificial Christmas trees as ecologically approved. The plastic in those trees use large quantities of petroleum, a non-renewable resource, he said. Mr. Spicer planted two or three seedlings for every tree harvested, and they take years to grow. Some of those seedlings now tower over trails, too tall to be a family's Christmas tree, and intermingled with other trees and underbrush, crowding out the view of Birch Plain Creek. But true to Mr. Spicer's wishes, the town made sure that the land was not developed. The town purchased the property from the family in 2013 for nearly a million dollars. Deb Jones, the assistant planning director for the town of Groton, said that about three-quarters of the money came from a grant from the Open Space Watershed Land Acquisition Program. That land is now Sparkle Lake Conservation Area. We um, developed a really small gravel parking lot so that people could actually access it, get off of Talmus Road. Um, we've constructed some trails uh, through the property. Um, there's a sort of an informal boat launch both on Sparkle Lake and on Birch Plain Creek. Um, and I'm not sure if Parks and Rec programs anything there, but in the future they probably will have some boating um, classes on Sparkle Lake. It's a nice protect protected area. Um, the conservation easement that's on the property also allows a small outdoor education facility like a, a pavilion. Um, we obviously haven't built that yet. The area got a bit nicer just a few weeks ago when the town resurfaced Thomas Road for the first time since the late 1980s. They're also adding in bike lanes, which will make it a bit more accessible for the bikers and joggers in the area. Along with people biking and jogging along Thomas Road, others will stop there to fish or kayak in Birch Plain Creek or Baker's Cove. As for the Christmas tree farm, Deb Jones said that had long been on the town's list of properties to acquire because of its tidal marsh and wetlands. The town was concerned about potential development there uh, because of its zoning as industrial and location near the airport. When I first moved to Groton, I would drive down Thomas Road and just think how beautiful it was with the trees and with Birch Plain Creek there, with the birds overhead. And now I find that when I drive down the road, I still think about that sometimes, but I'm also thinking about Bill Spicer Jr. and his murder there. I'm thinking about how he was killed on this land that was so beautiful and on land that he loved so much. Well, it's always pleasant to have nothing to do but yarn to an interested audience, <laughs> because you know, 
The thing that bothers me all the time when I start to talk about something is, is anybody interested in this? So does anybody care? Who cares? What's, maybe I'm better off to shut up. I'm keeping these people from going to watch the TV. I mean, they, you miss all of those Dallas movies. You find, oh my. <laughs> If you have a tip about William C. Spicer Jr.'s murder, please contact the Groton Town Police at 860-441-6716 or the New London State's Attorney's Office at 860-443-2835. If you have any questions about the Spicer case, post it on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash case unsolved or email us at caseunsolved at the day.com. Just a reminder to rate and review Case Unsolved on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use, as that helps people find our podcast. Case Unsolved is produced by Peter Wappi and me, Carlos Virgen. Reporting was done by Erica Moser. Editing and audio mixing by Peter Wappi. Tim Cotter is executive producer, and Sassy Larañeta is associate producer. I produce the music used in the series. This has been a production of The Day in New London, Connecticut. <laughs>